Greetings, listeners, and thank you for joining me for this edition of Science Changing Life. If you are expecting prescription sound, then never fear, the content is just the same, we've simply had a slight name change. If you're familiar with Scripps Research, the Institute's motto is Science Changing Life, to really encapsulate the impact that the research has on the wider world and the motivations that drive our scientists. So, we thought we should continue that sentiment here and align the podcast name as well. Administration aside, today we take a journey along our brain cells to explore the transport network inside neurons and its critical role in health and disease. I'm joined by neuroscientist Sandra Encalada, who investigates how this transport system breaks down and why it may be involved in neurodegeneration. But before we get there, let's find out how some pivotal moments in Ecuador set Sandra on the path that eventually led her to a fascination with tiny biological machines. I think my interest in science started around the time I was maybe probably 13, you know, somewhere in my early teens. I was in Ecuador, you know, I'm from Ecuador originally, and I was born in a household of four girls. I was the first of four. And, you know, my mother's a, an amazing homemaker. She took full care of us. But uh, my father was a social scientist who I remember at dinner would talk to us a lot about things in life and, and about choosing what do we like and, and our interests and so one of the things that I remember he emphasized how is how quantitative skills are so important and that if we studied mathematics, for example, or quantitative skills or the physical world, we would always have a stronghold on understanding reality, basically, right? And I remember that kind of striking me as, as a very important, you know, lesson. And I developed this very strong interest in physics initially. And so in Ecuador back then, we had to sort of choose directions early on in high school, even there were different paths that you could choose with regards to the classes that you took. And I took a lot of physics and math classes. You know, I just really got enamored with that. But I got to say, in a society where physics and math are not encouraged of girls, I had a pivotal interaction with a woman scientist who was actually working with my father in environment. She had been a, a radio astronomer in Puerto Rico at the Arecibo um, radio telescope. And mm. my father arranged for me to, to talk to her and have lunch with her. And I was 13 then. And it was really great. It was just the two of us. And she basically showed me a face of a woman who could do physics. And this really impacted me. And so from then on, I was sort of determined that I wanted to do that. And a few years after that, I was able to make it to the U.S. and I was studying my undergrad at Earlham College and I was a physics major. So I think my scientific interest started early, but it you know, was role models that really was important for me, that one role model anyway. Yeah, those inspiring mentors are so important. And I'm curious, how do you see the scientific landscape sort of in Ecuador compared to, say, the U.S. or other countries? Yeah, you know, I think that Ecuador has done a lot lately, you know, in the, in the year since I left, which was, gosh, over 30 years ago. But it's difficult there with regards to resources, availability for research, right? Mm. Education is available, you know, to most people. But regarding science and research, it's hard to find resources for that. They have a lot of priorities that are more applied toward direct, pragmatic needs and requirements that the, that the country has. And so for conservation, biology, for example, and so forth. So, you know, the aspect of research that I do now, it's a little bit harder to find. And 
for example, education is very good. I think at the level up to undergrad, there are not that many graduate programs there, right? So to be able to do research, one is sort of forced to reach out outside of Ecuador to get our either master's or uh, doctorate degrees. Sure. Yeah. It's always difficult to decide where to allocate those resources. And so with your sort of growing interest then in, in physics, was that your way in then to neuroscience? I started as an undergrad majoring in physics, like I said, as an, in, at Earlham College. But I, when I was there around my third year, I had some extra hours to fill in my schedule. And so I decided to take biology because I was curious about what all the fuzz was about. Because at Earlham, a lot of people, like about a third of students there were biology majors. And so I thought, well, I have some time. I'm just going to take, you know, the cell biology class that they were offering. That was a lower level class. And one of the labs coincided with a visit from an alumni, an alumnus, a scientist who had graduated from Earlham, you know, years ago, but she had now her own lab and came back to visit and she was studying the microtubule cytoskeleton. And so I didn't know what this was at that time. And as part of the lab, she did a demonstration where she simply put some slides under a fluorescent microscope and I peeked in and, you know, I never forget what I saw that day. So I saw this cell with an array of fluorescently labeled filaments. And these were these microtubules, right? This long uh, polymers that were lit up all concentrically coming from the middle of the cell reaching out over the periphery of this brown cell. The cell was actually dividing. So it was just this fantastic image of these filaments. And ever since then, I just got so interested and hooked on these microtubules that I decided, you know, I love physics, but I really want to find out what these things do, what these microtubules do. So I switched. For my PhD, I actually studied the role of the cytoskeleton on cell division in early embryogenesis. And I started to investigate the role of this tiny molecular machines that translocate on these filaments, these microtubules, and these are called molecular motors. And some of these move sort of like in a bipedal manner. So they walk along these microtubule tracks and they take things, components of the cell from one place to another place in the cell. Wow, really cool. And I think it's amazing you had that visual epiphany. And I think a lot of people have this perception of the cell of just like a lot of empty space, but it's amazing that there's all these, like you said, all these different tracks and kind of so much cargo is sort of moved from one place to another. It's just a fascinating coordination going on. Indeed, it's just a very busy, it's super crowded, the environment inside the cell actually. It's really remarkable how anything can move at all, really, given how crowded it is, you know, in any, any cell, really. And so it is fascinating indeed to see and to be able to understand and sometimes visualize as we do in our lab, how well this movement occurs. And sometimes when it's not so understood, how the movement doesn't occur very well. And this, it turns out is associated with disease, especially if it happens in this very specialized neurons, uh, cells that are called neurons that are really important for brain function, right? Right. And so that is the focus of your lab. And when we talk about neurons and this kind of trafficking, what are we talking about? What is actually being trafficked? What is being moved from one sort of, is it from one end of the cell to another, or is it different places in the cell? Yeah. So, you know, neurons are very distinctive type of cells because unlike many others and most other cells, uh, they're very polarized, right? So the main sort of 
central part of the cell is called the cell body. And, but there's all these projections that emanate from that central cell body that can get very, very long. And they make so that the cell becomes very asymmetric, right? Unlike, for example, a blood cell, which is very round and oval and maintains all its components very close to where the components are made and biosynthesized, right? But neurons being so highly asymmetric, they shoot out this very long projections called axons that sometimes can measure in our human bodies, for example, over a meter long. Like one example of one of these uh, very long axons is the one that radiates from the back of your spine all the way to the tip of your toes. That's a single axon that is over a meter in length. Wow. And so things in that axon, for example, are made in the back of your spine. That's where the, the mothership is, the soma, as it's called, or cell body is, right? But you need to take things all the way for a meter in length to the tip of your toes so you can sustain the, the health and the life of that axon and that, that neuron, right? Mm. And of course, that process is almost solely responsible by these machines that I mentioned to you. These little nanomachines are called molecular motors that translocate along the filaments, the microtubules that I was talking about earlier. And, you know, the cargo that we're talking about, principally about 99% of what the neuron needs for its survival is made in that main cell body that's in the back of the spine. So you need to take those things, like for example, mitochondria, to promote cell growth, to promote energy, to provide energy to all these long distance axons is made in the cell body. But you need to take those very long organelles all the way down to the tips in order to maintain, like I said, the health of the neuron to transmit information back from, for example, mechanical sensation at the tip of your toes to sense pain, to sense temperature, all the way back to the cell body so that that connection gets made back in turn to the brain. And so transport, as we call it, of these cargos by these molecular motors is absolutely essential. And you can imagine, you know, what happens if this gets disrupted, right? It's sort of like having water running through a hose, but somehow you constrict the hose at, at a certain point, but water tries to keep running. You'll have this big bulge made as water tries oh. to run through that. And so this, this is a traffic jam, right? And we call them traffic jams. When it happens in the brain, those traffic jams are directly linked and associated with neurodegeneration. And so there are very big consequences for dysfunction in this process of transport that you know, our lab has been very busy studying. Wow. So how is it that these traffic jams happen? How does that transport break down? I can tell you that one of the consequences, and we can start with that first, is that things get piled up at different regions along this long axonal fiber, all right, along this projection. And when things get clogged up or plugged up along the axon, you start forming this, this swellings. Mm that occur all along the axon that are similar to like beads on a string. And along those areas that are swollen, you can, if you take a knife and cut through them and look through the microscope, what you see is that things have gotten stuck and things that you find in there are all kinds of cargo that the cell has tried to move from the soma to the tip, but that has not been able to get through. 
So mitochondria is there. There are a number of filaments themselves that get stuck there. Many proteins that are really required at the tip that we call the synapse, right? That are critical components for transmission of information between neurons, right? Critical for memory formation and so forth. Those have gotten stuck on those traffic jams, right? And so there are many reasons how people think that those traffic jams occur, but one of the ways that it can occur, if you disrupt somehow the molecular machinery that carries those there. So for example, these tiny little motors that carry them, if you have mutations in those, you disrupt directly the cargo movement. And this is one way that you can obtain those. Incidentally, when you look at the population of humans, there's certain percentage of humans that have mutations in those tiny molecular motors, and they have symptoms and pathologies that are neuropathic, right? So they are completely consistent. They occur in the nerves, especially in the very long nerves, mm-hmm. like the peripheral nerves of the, like the one that I was telling you about, the sciatic nerve, as well as some of the, the extremities and the upper extremities, right? The ones that come to the tip of your hands. And those peripheral neuropathies, as they're called, they have distinctive traffic jams uh-huh. in their long axons, right? So this is one way to disrupt the proper flow of things in axons and to create those traffic jams, yeah. Got it. So would you say that the longer the nerve is, the more vulnerable it might be to having these traffic jams? Yeah, this is a very, very uh, astute uh, comment that you have, Drew, because I think it is. I think the longer the distance that these motors have to travel and that the cargo has to travel, the more probability, the more opportunities that there are for things to go wrong. And this is why we think that when people have mutations in molecular motors, you know, the more prominent signs of disease occur in the longest nerves in the body. Got it. So it's kind of like an analogy would be more likely to sort of have a crash and traffic jam the longer you're on a, a journey. Right. Exactly right. right. Yep. So in that case, is it better in general for trafficking to happen faster in the neuron? You know, this is a really interesting question. You would think so, right? You would think that promoting the trafficking of components would be a good thing, right? So if you have a mutation where you impair transport, then somehow accelerating that transport would do things better. However, it turns out we've learned through a lot of investigations at the subcellular level that promoting transport might not be so beneficial necessarily, right? It's a tricky business of balancing, right? There's a balancing act between having too much and having too little. Because it turns out if you target and make a motor faster or better at taking things, that motor is not a specialist for just one kind of cargo, but you might be disrupting the movement or accelerating the movement of many things that shouldn't be taken too fast to the synapse, okay? And so it's a very tricky thing to think about changing the parameters and making things faster. It's not as intuitive as one would think, right? While transport impairment is bad, accelerating transport might not be the greatest way to go about fixing that. Sure. Yeah. We're always tempted to correct something, but you know, that overcorrection can be just as bad. (laughs) Right. Our ability to learn and remember things is highly dependent on this constant transport of cargo along neurons. 
To send signals from one brain cell to another requires a whole symphony of molecular machinery, and the instructions for making these machines are often made at one end, the cell body, and must travel all the way to the other end to begin construction. Broadly speaking, I think the movement of all these signals, right, that you need to transfer from one part of the cell, this neuron to the other, for example, all these signaling components, organelles, and it turns out also messenger ribonucleic acids like RNAs, which are the precursors or templates in which you build proteins and make proteins, right? Those all need to be transported. You need to move these molecules to the tips of neurons because there it is very, these factors are very critical, for example, to start making proteins right there at the tips of neurons that are required and that are very, very important to maintain synaptic activity. Right, and what synaptic activity is, is this information exchange that occurs between neurons, usually at tips, mm -hmm. and that exchanges signals that mediate the storage of information and, and that help with memory consolidation in the brain. And so when we talk then about different neurodegenerative diseases, it seems like some of them are quite specific. You know, in the case of Parkinson's disease, we have a degeneration of dopamine neurons. So aside from just the length of the nerve, do these traffic jams sort of occur in specific sets of neurons? Yes, you know, there's some indication in, in the vast literature that there's what we call neuronal vulnerability to the formation of traffic jams in neurons in the brain, right? It is not really well understood how we can get certain neurons to form this sort of swellings that occur versus others that don't have the propensity. We don't understand very well yet at all, I, I would say, how some neurons have that ability versus others. And so there's some affinity between neurons, like you mentioned, and vulnerability. And there's also vulnerability within the neuron itself. It seems like the axon seems to be much more able to get these traffic jams than the rest of the neuron itself. And those swellings, by the way, contain also aggregates inside of them of these proteins that tend to aggregate in the swollen disease, which are yeah. you know, very characteristic of neurodegeneration. Right. Yeah. That's what we hear about. So can you have neurodegenerative disease without the presence of these traffic jams? Ah, great question, Drew. Yeah. You know, I think with the traffic jams themselves, I think are a manifestation of perhaps something else, right? Uh, that goes on in brains of, of people that are affected with neurodegeneration, right? But one of the consequences, potential consequences of traffic jams is the accumulation of these proteins that I alluded to earlier that tend to misfold and start sticking to themselves, right? To each other, this sort of aggregates, protein aggregates, and the protein aggregates, when they do this and they accumulate specifically in the axon, contribute to this traffic jams, perhaps as a secondary effect, okay? And so to get to your question of, you know, would you get neurogeneration without traffic jams? You know, it is possible. However, it is also a very clear observation that very early in the disease, the presence of these aggregates inside axon is, is, is almost virtually 100% observed in brains 
of any neurodegenerative disease as well, right? So whether they occur directly as a result of traffic, either like trafficking defects, that is not super clear, but when they're formed and they're formed, they're formed almost always in neurodegeneration, right? So it's an observation that occurs in virtually every neurodegenerative disease. Got it. So it could be a cause, but could also be a consequence of uh, something else happening in the pathology. Yes, indeed. So it seemed like your lab had identified some mutations that could increase the propensity for these traffic jams to happen. And that could be a, a clear genetic reasoning for neurodegenerative disease. So what do you think about that interplay with sort of environmental triggers? Because it seems like, you know, lifestyle factors now are being linked with neurodegenerative disease and, you know, things like exercise could contribute to brain health. We've got, you know, things like diabetes that co-occur with neurodegenerative disease. So how do you think these environmental triggers could influence traffic jams? Huh. You know, that's something that it's, I, I think has received very little attention, you know, with regards mm. to research, the environmental effects and how that could influence traffic jams. I think that it's unclear how that would be with regards to maybe lifestyle, lifestyle choices and so forth. But I think mm-hmm. with regards to the environment, there's many, many environmental confounding factors that have been identified, I think that contribute to the progression or the initiation and progression of many of the diseases. You know, Parkinson's disease is a really good example. There's a lot of influence of epidemiological evidence that strongly supports the exposure of environmental pollutants, for example. Uh, yeah. So like heavy metals, pesticides, solvents, detergents, and other industrial byproducts are highly associated with the development of of Parkinson's disease and in a few other neurological disorders, actually, right? Yeah. So these toxins are known to cross the blood-brain barrier, right? So they're able to infiltrate the brain mm-hmm. and the consequences to the health of the of the cells in the brain are pretty consequential once they once they do that, right? So heavy metals are very particularly toxic. The presence of, of these trace elements, right? Of for example, heavy copper or zinc aluminum, they're, they're actually known to accelerate the rate at which these aggregates form inside neurons, right? And these aggregates are some of the aggregates that could clog, for example, this transport that we were talking about that needs to occur in the axon, right? Sure. And speaking of actually these kinds of outside substances, I suppose, do you know how certain addictive drugs might affect the transport of these different components along our neurons, and then even hallucinogenic drugs that might remodel the way we learn. That's so interesting. You know, I got to say, I don't know too much about that. It's a fascinating topic to me because, uh, you know, I think it is very clear that obviously those substances remodel pathways, you know, and many of them are temporary, but I think some other are longer lasting. And Mm -hmm. so the effects of some of these substances like hallucinogens and so forth, I mean, obviously, they're clearly uh, modulating the abilities of neurons to communicate, right? I think that there's no question about that. How they do that, and specifically with respect to this particular process that our lab studies, you know, this transport, I don't know how they would be doing it. I would be surprised, to be honest, if they didn't. But, you know, I don't know that that process has been studied. You know, it'd be fascinating to do it. <laughs> yeah, sure possible grant in the future. Yeah, right. 
I'm sure, there would be a lot of stud- a lot of students that might volunteer for this. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly getting more popular. Definitely. Yeah. So, has your lab or other labs identified possible molecules that could help with breaking down these traffic jams and potentially reduce the burden of different neurodegenerative diseases? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, my lab is very interested in this and finding compounds that we could develop into therapeutics. As you know, there's not really very good treatments for these diseases at all. So we are actually actively pursuing this to both identify and characterize compounds. And Scripps has been really great because this is a, a perfect place to do this, right? We've paired up with chemical biologists and chemists here at Scripps that are actively trying to identify compounds that do various things, right? So we're working alongside the laboratory of Jeff Kelly here at Scripps, who has identified a number of small molecules that upregulate degradation of proteins in cells, right? And one of those proteins that we think are being degraded by the treatment of specifically neurons with these compounds are these proteins that are very sticky, that form aggregates that are really, you know, we think that are at the center of producing toxicity, neurodegenerative diseases. And we have modeled this in cells and in mouse brains as well. And these compounds that I mentioned that the Kelly lab has identified, when you treat cells that have these bulges, when you treat them early enough before they're forming this aggregates, they very efficiently inhibit the formation of these aggregates, Right. And we're treating them at later and later time points after these aggregates are formed. And we're finding that in some occasions, they actually might be inhibiting the formation afterwards. So they might be promoting the degradation of already formed aggregates, which would be really important, actually, right, for thinking about using them for treatment, not just as prophylactics, but Mm. for treatment once these aggregates have formed already in the brains of patients, right? And one of the things that we're really excited about is that at least in cellular, within this context of cells in a dish, once these molecules inhibit the formation of these aggregates, they completely restore neuronal function of those neurons. Wow. And so that to us, the extent of the robustness of that, of that data that we're finding is making us very excited about moving forward now. Wow. Yeah, it's a tantalizing idea to be able to not just stop these plaques in the brain from forming in the first place, but also reverse them. And the incidence of these diseases is pretty high now. So it would be a, a massive impact if you, uh, if you could achieve that. Yeah, we're right now in a pretty much in a pandemic of Alzheimer's disease with, you know, one in nine Americans age 65 mm-hmm. or older being stricken with Alzheimer's. So this is a pretty high incidence indeed, yeah. Yeah, much needed work. So when you're not in the lab navigating your way down neurons, what are some of your other hobbies and passions outside? Yeah, yeah no, you know, with the last few years, I have a five-year-old, so I spend a lot of time with her. And, and it's actually pretty good with because I have to completely switch my brain from from science to doing a very, very different type of kind of thinking, which is really great, actually, and welcome. But, you know, I also I like to swim a lot and uh, I'm gotten very slowly back to swimming in the ocean here in San Diego. Oh. You know, we're fortunate here to have um, the ocean that is pretty available pretty much year round with a good wetsuit, um, of course the water is pretty cold in the winter at least but i've also you know taken up piano lately i Great. you know I, I actually was trained classically from 
the time I was like seven years old, but in Ecuador, when I had my piano, of course I could play it there, but you know, for the last 30 years or so, I haven't actually owned one until very recently. And uh, so now I've taken up teaching myself how to improvise in the piano, which I find is very difficult for a classically trained pianist. <laughs> so I'm definitely exercising some brain plasticity. Yeah, remodeling that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, maybe I'll just end with my final roundup question. So if you could give somebody your one piece of advice or golden piece of wisdom, you know, in the realm of work, career progression, life, health, self-improvement, honestly, anything, what do you think it would be and why? Yeah. One of the, I think, skills that has been really key for me to to develop in, in like I said, science in life has been to observe, to, to develop the, the power of observation of your subject, right? Of your organism, as I call it. And what I mean by organism is the subject of your study, right? Uh, in doing science, we all have a focus. And, uh, you know, in, in our case is studying the movement of these organelles inside neurons, right? But all this interesting approaches that we're using nowadays are very fancy. You know, there's genomics, proteomics, sort of big omics approaches, as well as all these new techniques in microscopy that we use and all that. Those are the serving signs very well. But the, what, what I think we, we can serve very well from is to really observe intently our, our, our organism, because mm-hmm. this allows us to be able to understand things at a level that we might miss if we get really enamored with, you know, there's, there's very, very sort of provocative and sexy approaches that we're using that detaches us a little bit sometimes from knowing our subject very well, right? I remember that I learned this from, from an ecologist, right? Because ecologists know how to do this observation really, really well. And she told me, you know, if you observe carefully your organism, you will understand things and you will get a gut feeling for what is the process that you're observing that is second to none other feeling that you will get, okay? So I think this advice, I I think I've been able to put in practice for our science and for certain parts of my life as well. So, you know, I would say really observe and, and develop that skill. A great note to end on there, that the scientific method begins by making even the most basic observations of the world around you. A big thank you to Sandra for joining me and showing us the potential power of correcting this neuronal trafficking for treating or reversing neurodegeneration. In the show notes, you can find more links to Sandra's work as well as other recent Scripps research content. Remember to hit that five-star rating if you like this podcast and stay tuned for more upcoming episodes. So until we meet again, thank you for listening, stay curious, and farewell.